Welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about global health and human rights, and in particular, about how innovations in biotechnology can inspire and engage us rather than constrain and confuse us. Well, in this episode, we meet a pioneer of what you might call humanist technology, using the power of creative design to tell stories, educate, inform, and excite communities about innovations in healthcare. It's Nancy Green, founder of Donovan Green. Welcome to A Shot in the Arm, Nancy. Well, thank you, Ben. It's a great pleasure to be here. So look, Tony Fauci has just talked about the balance of the science and the art of public health. And I just wanted to know, what does that mean for you, the art of public health? Well, the first thing it means for me, of course, is clarity. If people don't know what to do, you can't get them excited about doing it. And then there's the, the other thing that to me is most important as the balancing of clarity is helping people understand why it matters to them. Well, in this episode, I really want to explore your career and how this pioneering work you've done to to weave a various uh, set of disciplines together has helped has really helped um, inform the way that we communicate and engage. I think of you really somewhat as a Renaissance woman. You've used creative design to provide effective education models, exhibitions and commercial campaigns. Gosh, shopping experiences for young girls, and I really want to come back to that, <laughs> and access to healthcare. So could you just walk us through your career? How have you joined the dots? Well, I always felt that design was a human activity that anyone, everyone does, first of all, and anyone could learn how to do as a sort of discipline. And when I say everyone can do it, it really means that design is just about planning and following through. And if you think about that, think about how many things we can do if we thought about the logic of the plan we were making. So I started off my career working in the South Bronx with, with kids who were in middle school, helping them to think about how they wanted their classrooms to look and feel so that they could learn better and then helping them to use the tools of design to actually redesign and rebuild their classrooms and therefore empower them to feel ownership over the act of learning. And I think that principle of if you help people understand how it works for them, if you help them reflect their own needs and wants and desires and what excites them in the things they do, then they own it. And when they own it, it's a whole new story, you know, rather than saying, do it to me, you patriarch, you tell me what to do and I will do it. Maybe I'll do it. Maybe I won't because I don't own it. And I think getting people to own their own life experiences and their own environment and their own health and their own well-being is the first step in, in anything. And then you have to help them understand exactly what to do next. So you you went on to design exhibitions. You did mm -hmm. uh, commercial strategies for large for large companies. Mm -hmm. um, uh, how did these disciplines sort of come together and tell you 
how to infuse in and engage communities when it comes to health. Um, and, and I suppose, really, how did you get interested in health? Well, storytelling is storytelling, you know? I mean, if you're going to tell a story, you have to really kind of lean into what the person you're telling the story to wants to hear and is excited about hearing. That's where the exhibitions, we built a lot of technology centers for high-tech companies to show off their wares. But you had to do it in a way that really brought them in, that met them where they were. And I think healthcare is also about storytelling. And you'll think of those Saturday evening post covers where you have the little boy, you know, in the doctor's office with his pants pulled down and this cute little country doctor is giving him a shot. You can imagine that the relationship between the little boy and the doctor is friendly. You know, the doctor is helping him understand why this might be good for him. I mean, I think we all yearn for people who will explain things to us in such a way that we understand what it means to us. And I think healthcare, first of all, is all about people to taking responsibility for their own health and well-being. That's number one. And secondly, how, if they're going to take responsibility and you motivate them to do it, how do they do it? I mean, what do they do first? What do they do second? What are the steps? And I think my journey to healthcare was really starting to think about health and well-being and what design could do for that when I was an advocacy planner. And over time, I sort of drifted into first information design and information architecture. And I started doing work for big pharmaceutical companies, really creating information frameworks for them that really, uh, that really made sense of their knowledge to their own scientists. And then I moved gradually into looking at how you share health and knowledge with healthcare providers, and then how do you engage people in their own health by getting them information and content, but also motivating them to think about why they should do that for themselves. Now, you live in New York, right? Uh, Correct. And, and have done so for a lot of your life. Um, I, I got to ask, uh, you must have been there in the late 70s, early 80s. Did the AIDS epidemic um, affect you in any way? Did, it, did that alter your mindset? Well, it did in the sense that, you know, I, I lived in the West Village um, on Hudson Street, a corner of Hudson and Perry, which was the epicenter of one of the epicenters of the gay community in New York City. Plus, I'm a creative person. You know, I, I, I went to design school from 71 to 73. I then came out and started practicing design and building an office of people, young people who were designers. And every which way we were confronted with the AIDS epidemic, walking down the street, uh, dealing with our peers in school, dealing with our employees. I mean, way too many people. I spent way too many moments in the AIDS ward at Roosevelt Hospital, sitting by the bedside of people I loved and cared for. And it had a huge impact on me as an activist. First of all, as a as an activist marching for integration and for civil rights, and then ultimately really fighting with the powers that be around the AIDS crisis, because there were just, there were answers that could be had, it just felt like it, and no one was looking, and no one was caring. And yet this was the center of my universe. So I think 
all my life, I felt like I had, my mother marched in Selma. I mean, I always felt I had a responsibility to make the world a better place for everyone. It wouldn't be good enough for me if it wasn't good enough for all of them. And I think that that attitude about, you know, society's problems are our problems, my problems. If we don't fix them, who's going to fix them? So I guess I always felt all the way through that I would ultimately end up working on issues, big issues that would make a difference for a lot of people. And I, I think in many ways, um, what we learned from the AIDS epidemic uh, is the power of the community to drive and force change. And, you know, as you have then moved into working for um, pharmaceutical companies and you were the uh, head of creative design for the medicines company for a, a good chunk of time, um, how did you apply that sense of community ownership to the way, say, that you retain uh, patients who participate in clinical trials? Um, and, and having had a background in method, medical ethics, I always refer, you know, uh, participants rather than subjects of clinical right, trials. Right, right, right. Subjected to as opposed to participating in, right? Yeah. Yes. Well, one, I am a, I was educated as a user-centered design person, which means the person that you are designing for has got to be the center of your universe. Your job has to be to really understand them, to care about them, one could argue from a hippie 60s point of view, you have to love the people you're teaching in a very, uh, in a very profound way because you care about them as humans, you respect them as humans. And I think that way of seeing the world is what one brings to healthcare. Great doctors feel it, great nurses feel it. Um, anyone who participates in healthcare in a positive way who isn't just practicing technology, who's really dealing with human beings, really sees that it's, you know, when you see a human being, you're seeing an N of one. You know, there isn't a bunch of people. There's one person with one set of needs, one set of hopes, dreams, one background. You know, I love the example someone said of, you know, if you see a human being in an emergency room as a human being, you don't send them home if you don't understand what home looks like. You don't release them after surgery unless you know if they have access to care, access to their medicines, either financially or just moving around. I mean, all these issues that are seem small are really the biggest issues of healthcare, which is how do we care for people one at a time as an individual? And I think that is both a huge opportunity and a huge challenge because if we all worked in the world as if every single person deserved our respect, had dignity, wherever they were in the world, whatever they were doing, wherever they lived, we would really design systems, design healthcare systems, design doctor visits, design how we get medications, design everything differently than the way it is now, where it feels like we've solved the problem with a systems view, which is a good thing, we haven't necessarily solved the problem with a human view. And the systems view, um, as we've learned from COVID, uh, particularly in the United States, well, that sort of didn't really work very well, certainly for the first year and a half. 
But I wanted to get your take, Nancy, on pharmaceutical drug commercials. I mean, here we are. We've been we're coming out of shutdown, but we've been in it for over a year. We've obviously had to do a lot of television watching. Um, (laughs) And, um, you know, this isn't the BBC. We get adverts. And um, it's been extraordinary to me that the bulk of them have been for pharmaceutical products. Um, You know, it creates the impression that pharma is the only industry that is uh, able to afford adverts in this time. But I, I... I, I also wonder what you think about the concept of pharmaceutical drug advertising on TV. Does it work? How does it does it do anything to help us? Well, it helps the pharmaceutical companies because you go to your doctor and you say, I just saw an advertisement for X and it looks like that would be perfect for me, right? And a lot of doctors will give their patients what they want just because it quiets them down. And it, you know, it, it, it takes away the pressure from the doctor. I, I have a personal animosity toward the entire pharma industry, even though I think it's such an important, so important to our health and well-being. And I so admire the people who are working in the labs and dealing with technology and making improvements all the time. What I resent is the fact that most of the money, the big money, is going into smaller and smaller diseases. So that the things that affect most of us, diabetes and heart disease uh, and, and NASH, non-alcoholic uh, liver disease, fatty liver disease, all these things, AIDS, um, coronavirus, all these things affect individual, p- huge populations of people. And yet all the money until this last COVID jaunt, it's been going into not anti-infectives to deal with uh, um, antibiotic resistance, not any of the drugs that are cheap, but going into the huge rare disease categories, the rare cancers and this and that, that they can charge $300,000 a year for because they may be serving a lot fewer people. Yeah, Yeah, they may be serving a lot fewer people, but they're making a lot more money. And that is unconscionable to me. Right. Um, I, I got to say, I, I, I think the industry has a really important role to play in uh, providing treatments for the many, not the few. Absolutely. Um, uh, but we've got a long, a long way to get to go to get there. And I think there are there are scientists, marketeers, uh, advocates that are in the companies that, that really know how to do this. Um, but there's a there's a, a mind shift, a, a substantial seismic shift that still has to happen. Um, well, you understand I, I why it's, it's, you, it's you understand why it's happening. It's shareholders. It's shareholders. It's public companies having to meet their quarterly numbers. I mean, that's why we have an opioid crisis as well. So there so, you have so it. So looking at the looking at the broader state of things now, and and if we take apart, put to one side, uh, political interference and inaction. Um, over the last year and a half, have there, have there been examples of creative communications, creative design in combating COVID-19 that have inspired you? Oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> I, th- I think that one of the most creative aspects of this whole crisis has been those celebrities and people at home who've gotten involved and care 
and they're making masks and they're telling people to wear masks and they're telling people to get vaccinated in creative and interesting ways. There are, you know, chains that are offering a free beer if you get a vaccine and bringing the vaccine to the place. I mean, I think there are a lot of interesting human, humanly, creatively thought up I don't see very much that's happened at a societal level, but I see a lot that's happened at a human to human level. And that inspires me because people are taking matters into their own hands when government is not supporting. And and then that leads me to, you know, a sort of a reflection on the behavior of or the, the commentary, sorry, from some public health experts to to look at, you know, China's lockdown as an example uh, it was an effective model. Well, undoubtedly it was. Um, other examples in, in Eastern and Southeast, uh, yeah, Australia or uh, Singapore and Korea, where, you know, it's less about empowering people to take control of their own health destiny, but more about directing societies to behave in particular ways. And then they do that. Um, does that challenge, do you think, the 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 design philosophy to engaging uh, folks around healthcare? Well, I think you have to really look at the larger picture and understand that, that the, the political divide we have in this country intersected with the public health issues in a not productive way. So it isn't, you know, the only country that you mentioned, that we mentioned, Australia, is not a dictatorship but there's a huge amount of compliance and going along for the public good that exists as a way of thinking in Australia. The other countries you mentioned are very top-down um, countries where they do what the government tells them to do because the government told them to do it. We, we just aren't built like that in the United States. What really worked for us in previous wars, like the Second World War, is that we got on board because we cared about each other and we care about our country as a country and it was patriotic to get in the same boat together. That is no longer the case in this country, which is what really harmed us during the COVID crisis. Um, absolutely. And, and and I also think a, a, a couple of decades worth of underinvestment and sort of scooping out uh, of our public health infrastructure. Absolutely. But I, I wanted... Yeah. I, I also, Nancy, wanted to get your thoughts on the recent CDC guidelines, um, <laughs> the revision around masks. And, oh my God. you know, <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> where do we start? Where do we start? Well, it might <laughs> sort of make theoretical clinical sense, uh, but it took everybody, authorities, employers, communities, completely by surprise. And it's left many of us unsure about when and where to, to, to wear masks. Um, I, I can tell you've got strong views about this. <laughs> I do. That's where I come. That, that is exactly why. I think you're absolutely right that public health needs enthusiasm and teamwork. And I said clarity because I was referring to that debacle. I just took a trip to Florida this weekend and it is so crazy because people are so confused about when do I wear a mask? I mean, the answer is you don't need to wear a mask except, and there are 20 exceptions. Like if you're on a bus, if you're on a plane, if you're in a terminal, 
if you're in a congregate care setting, if you're in a hospital. I mean, the list of accept is very long. So then you get to a place like Florida that has been an anti-masking state to begin with. And people are just throwing off the masks. And, you know, of course, all the store owners are, I'm not going to tell my customers they have to put on a mask, right? Because I'm so happy to have them in the door. The whole thing is such a mess. And it really came down to the fact it wasn't thought through as to how it would hit the public and how clarity, if people want to do the right thing, you have to help them understand how. Right. Absolutely right. I completely agree. And and um, in, in this instance, there didn't seem to be any preparation or thought back to, to what Fauci calls the uh, art, the art <laughs> of public, public health. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other questions I wanted to ask you uh, is about One Health. You've become a really strong proponent of, again, this sort of inter to twining of disciplines, of the environment, of climate health, of our interactions with wildlife and its impact on human health. And um, you've really inspired me over the course of the last year, I think, to to realise that this is perhaps the most important approach to thinking about infectious disease on our planet. What, what got you into One Health? Uh, being a designer. I mean, I... I went to design school when it was all about systems thinking. It was really never under, never trying to isolate your problem, but try to understand all the forces that are impinging on your problem and that have relevance to your problem. So while you're looking at what a user needs, what a person needs for some particular situation, you also need to look at all the things that are going on around them. And One Health is a true systems look at the globe and it's saying that there I mean this is one thing that is so confusing to people it's not simple anymore because there are so many different factors that impact a given moment in time and a given problem that unless you unpack it unless you really understand all the factors and you miss one of them then you miss solving the problem so it's a it's a discipline around thinking about everything that can impact a problem you're trying to solve. And One Health is very much that. It says, of course, we care about the cute little bunny rabbits or, to be more accurate, the frogs that are disappearing. But we can't think about the frogs unless we think about everything that's going on in their ecosystem. Because if we're going to, if we're going to figure out a solution for them, like let's protect a frog by not doing X, Y, and Z, let's make sure... We haven't inadvertently harmed something else that we weren't thinking about. For example, the humans that need to work and therefore saving that frog is going to take away jobs. Or hmm. not cutting down that rainforest is going to take away the jobs of the local workers who depend on it for their livelihood. So if you're going to stop deforestation, you have to figure out what are the workers going to do? How are they going to live? We're all, it's all interconnected. And you think about one part and you rally for one part, you have to think about all the other parts. I mean, I'll give you a good example in terms of AIDS as we were talking about. The early the early uh, therapies for AIDS were so onerous that people said, you know, I'm not gonna do that. You know, I'd rather just take my chances. And I think that like with many things, we have to think about all the things that go around 
a therapy or a technology or a human experience or an environmental experience to make sure that we understand everything and everybody that's going to be impacted. Um, what I like about your thinking, your approach, is that y you talked about hippies, but this is not sort of carey sherry, happy feely no. stuff. This is this is hard nosed, evidence driven, yes. um, and and I, I think that is such a crucial element of this point in human evolution. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's the Extinction Rebellion uh, protests. Um, whether it's Black Lives Matter or Stop Asian Hate, this is rooted in experience and and evidence and demanding change. Um, and I really like the way that you have or you present this in such a clear, tangible way. Do you think um, there is a risk that we? You know, we, we we focus on the the fluffy bunnies or the cute bats. I've come to realize bats are really cute looking. Um, <laughs> they are but cute. Do we focus on that too much? Well, when you say too much, I think one of the things that happened is the pendulum swings. You know, no one knew what a bat was except that they were these funny things that flew at night until COVID happened, and now a few more people know that viruses come from bats. And then if you don't understand that bats, bats pollinate extensively, that without bats, many different crops would disappear from our planet entirely. You know, you, you have to, you can't take anything at face value. You have to really understand. And, you know, I, I always argue that the biggest problem we have in this country is we have a very uneven education system. You can't expect people who are not well-educated and not educated to understand in this way to understand something that you're presenting in a complex way. You have to help people learn the critical thinking skills that you need in order to address all sorts of things in today's environment and in today's world. And I think we are suffering from a very binary approach. This is good. This is bad. You know, and, and the reality is that there is so much in between that and there's so much gray area that is really informed by the details. And we have to teach people to be more patient in terms of how they make decisions, how they solve problems, how they look at a human problem, an animal problem, an ecosystem problem, and really understand how everything is going to be impacted by a particular approach. So we're we're coming up to the top of the uh, top of the hour, and and there's a, a a question I've been asking every guest over the last year, and I know we're sort of beginning to emerge from uh, the shutdown. But how have you stayed sane? Whether it's TV binge watching or book reading, <laughs> uh, what's keeping your attention at the moment? Well, it certainly was. TV binge watching. There was some great stuff on television during COVID, thank heavens. And I never have time to watch TV otherwise. It was definitely reading a lot. My husband and I started playing Chinese checkers, which is we have a viciously competitive Chinese checker thing going on in our house. And I got him a handmade Chinese checkerboard. So games. And I think lastly, and not not minorly, work. And I spent a lot of time reading and thinking and uh, working on us 
And, and I think all those things, I felt productive. I felt entertained. I'm not sure I ever want to go back to my old life. <laughs> I'm loving the reading, watching television, and working part. Yeah, I, I got to say, I think we've been incredibly <laughs> productive over the last year. Yeah, and you, you know, we have we met in person? I'm not sure. I think we, we ben, know I each other so well. I don't think we have ever met in person. No. And I feel like you're my... We a relative of mine. <laughs> it's been a fascinating uh, experience for me. Um, I've got to say, uh, uh, we've had uh, a crisis of what to watch on television, um, on cable, but uh, oh, cable, what am I, who am I kidding? You know, the new channels, the new networks. Right, right, um, right. And uh, we've discovered Lupin, which is a French... Oh, I, I, uh, yes, watched it. I loved it. <laughs> I love and Lupin. there's a new season coming out in in ah. early June. So, well, I was big well, on the Kaminsky method. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I'll tell you. I think, I think that we're going to open up again differently because I think a lot of people I've talked to have found the time to reflect uh, very uh, unusual and somehow gratifying to really be able to take a minute when you get up in the morning. And know that you don't have to commute to work. You don't have to leave your, you're going to go from your bed to your kitchen to your desk. So you might as well think a little. And I, and I think that notion of contemplation, of mindfulness, I hope for myself, this is my wish, that I stay a little bit more mindful than I was when I was running from one place to the other. Yeah. yeah. And, and for me, flying from one place to, to yes, another. Yes, that I, too. I got to confess, I really don't want to be doing that again. No. Well, well, look, uh, Nancy, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. You are a shot in the arm. Uh, well, you are. You are. You ask the best questions, Ben. You were born for this. Thank you very much. Well, <laughs> thank you, Nancy, and, and thank you very much to. Um, Sarah Anderson uh, from the Bay Area Global Health Alliance. Thank you to Eric Espera, our uh, producer and director of Newsdoc Media, who sorted all our technical problems out <laughs> you, uh, for this interview. Yeah. Um, and uh, thanks to you, our listeners and guests, uh, listeners and guests, listeners and viewers. Uh, you can find us on our YouTube channel, on Facebook, on Twitter and Instagram. Um, at Shot Arm Podcast. You can find us on all the main uh, podcast platforms. Uh, please leave us a review and give us five stars. It helps spread the message. So have a great week and a safe week, everyone. And again, thank you so much, Nancy. Thank you, Ben.